Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I am Christian Sager. Uh, if anybody out there has listened to the show before, you know that both Robert and I and Joe are HP Lovecraft readers. Uh, and so when we were doing an episode about dreams, of course, the Dreamlands came up, uh, which is a sort of part of Lovecraft's mythos, right? We all immediately thought the Dreamlands. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a fabulous tale if you've never read it. The Dream Quest of Unknown Cadeth, uh, being the, the central the most famous of his uh, dream related tales and it involves a a master dreamer who sets out across the dreamland in, in in search of this ideal city that he just glimpses once and it's like the dream domain of gods that has been stolen from him and so he yeah. goes on this just epic sprawling quest that takes him from just one crazy location to another from encounters with all sorts of creatures that range from surprisingly cute for a Lovecraft uh, episode uh, to just, of course, monstrously alien and horrific. Yeah, he had like a, a couple different uh, short stories. I haven't read a ton of the Dreamland stuff, to be honest with you, but there's a couple ones that sort of map out this like it's it's almost like a continent in, in mm-hmm. Lovecraft's mythos, right? Like there's the Plateau of Lang and Cadeth oh, and, yeah. and then... Uh, Ulthar? Isn't there one called, like, the Cats of Ulthar? Yeah, and they feature in Decat, in Decatith as well. Oh, so really? He, he goes through there. Yeah, the, the cats are super cute. Uh, and also the, the goblins that the cats uh, end up eating. They're not called goblins, but yeah. they're essentially a goblin. Okay. Yeah, so, you know, we're going to talk about dreams, but, you know, what better what better dreamer to start with than Randolph Carter? Yeah, the, the other big dreamer that always comes to mind uh, when I think about just the power of dreams and the mystery of dreams is, of course, uh, uh, Borges, uh, Jorge oh, Luis yeah. Borges. Uh, it's particularly his tale, The Circular Ruins. Yeah, and, you mentioned this one to me, and I had to go look it up, and I, I read it, like, probably 10, maybe 15 years ago, but I definitely read it, and it's one of those ones that, like, I barely remember, you know, sort mm-hmm. of, because a lot of uh, the short story collection Labyrinths sort of just all merges into a lot of stories about mazes right. and labyrinths. Is this like that? Yeah, well, it's this one is one that I think s- some of his tales are, you know, more like B-sides, I yeah. think. Yeah. But this is definitely a hit single. So it's uh, it's about a, a particularly adept dreamer who creates a tulpa within a dream, like a thought construct he's trying to make real. Okay. Uh, to, qu- uh, to quote the story, he wanted to dream a man. He wanted to dream him in minute entirety and impose him on reality. Uh, and I, it's super short. I'm not going to spoil it uh, because you should go read it the second you're done with this podcast episode. But it's just really... Really beautiful and mind blowing. This reminds me of uh, yet another uh, stuff to blow your mind uh, author that we keep circling around, Grant Morrison. Oh yeah, because tulpas and dream states come up a lot in his work. Especially, it reminded me um, tulpas are huge in his run on the X Men. And I don't know if you've read that yet. But I have not read. Uh, yeah, I th- any of the X Men. I stuff. think you'd enjoy it. There's some crazy stuff with Professor X and tulpas and dreams and everything. It's really good. Yeah, because one of the things you see, I think you see. In, in fiction, in literature, in movies, in TV, everyone uses dreams, you know. Yeah. But not everyone who uses dreams uses them with, uh, with elegance and uses them in a, in a way that, that, that really is anything other than just a way to, to push the narrative along. So speaking of narratives and dreams, uh, this week's episodes are actually sponsored by Falling Water, which is a new show that's coming out on October 13th from the USA Network. Yeah, they approached us. They said, hey, 
We want to sponsor a couple of episodes that deal with dreams. We've covered dreams before and continue to cover dreams. So it seemed like a perfect matchup. Yeah. So what's their show about? Well, we'll talk about it a little bit in our sponsored breaks. I don't want to spoil too much for you. It hasn't aired yet, but it's a sci-fi mystery that's essentially about entering other people's dreams. This episode that you're listening to is going to be about Frederick Van Eden and his nine types of dreams that he came up with, uh, as well as we're going to cover the gamut of lucid dreaming and Stephen LaBerge, who's sort of like the modern day, uh, I guess, expert on this. And the USA Network put us in touch with Dr. Moran Serif. So you'll hear an interview at the end of this episode where we talk to him. He's a modern neuroscientist. He's been on a couple of our uh, contemporary uh, podcast peers. And uh, we're going to talk to him at the end of, the, of each of these episodes. He's got some stuff to bring to light on these subjects. All right. With all that out of the way, we're going to dive into the content here, into the episode itself. And just as Borges and Lovecraft were, were both mappers of the dream world as well, uh, Frederick Van Eden definitely did his part to help us create a, uh, a map of the dream world. So uh, a, a classification system, uh, his, his own personal classification system for what dreams consist of. So Van Eden, uh, it's, it's actually like if you go searching for stuff on him, it's kind of uh, tough to find. But the Columbia Electronic Encyclopedia has a very short entry on him. And it essentially says that he was a Dutch novelist and poet, but he was also a practicing physician. He And he founded a cooperative farm colony. Uh, his work seems to mainly be steeped in deep mysticism, as the encyclopedia called it. And you'll probably see a little bit of that as we go along here. But I I was I found it surprisingly, no pun intended, lucid uh, as we (laughs) went through these different dreams. Uh, He was alive from 1860 to 1932. And uh, as alluded earlier, he is the person who coined the term lucid dreaming as one of these nine types of dreams. Yeah, he, I looked into him a little more. He, very interesting guy. He was, he was interested in politics and Indian philosophy. He translated, uh, Bangalore poet, uh, Rabindarath Tagore's Gitanjali into Dutch. Oh, okay. Uh, he, he wrote a number of novels and, and some of them are available in English translation if you look them up and you can, oh. the Kindle versions especially range from free the, to like a couple super, of dollars. Yeah, because they're past the copyright. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He, uh, he wrote a, no- a novel titled The Bride of Dreams. And in this one, a man has two wives, one in the waking world and one in the dream world. But he only truly loves the dream bride. Yeah, I got the impression that uh, that book, Bride of Dreams, was heavily influenced by the the sort of more uh, grounded fact-based nonfiction stuff we're going to talk about today. Yeah, in some of the books I was looking at of, of his, you definitely see recurring elements from the dreams. Um, yeah, and, and these books... Uh, I see them popping up on lists of uh, some of the, the the best Dutch language novels of all time. Huh. He was apparently part of the Dutch uh, literary movement known as the Talk Tigers or the Movement of the Eighty Eight. And uh, yeah, he had, he had a movie called The Quest, which is kind of a, a dream questy kind of a thing. And then he also wrote one. I, I think our listeners will particularly like this, titled uh, "From the Cold Pools of Death," <laughs> or uh, in Dutch, "Van de Kola Meren des Dudes." So Van Eden tracked all of his dreams in a journal, and what I mean a lot. Like, and he refers to this in this piece that we're going to be heavily referencing throughout the rest of the episode. It's a paper he wrote with the hope of engaging with the Society of Psychical Research. 
uh, and it's called The Study of Dreams. Now, this was, he referred to it as a preliminary look at the work that he hoped to engage more in for the rest of his career. Now, this is sort of like the boiled down condensed version of it, but like we said, it, it dreams and the idea of like how they fit into, uh, both our, physical bodies and our culture was a major topic for him, both in nonfiction and fiction. Indeed. So before we really launch into his classifications, I'm just going to do a quick, super fast refresh on phases of sleep and how this, the dreaming actually like occurs chronologically. Okay. So you have two main phases of sleep. You have non-rapid eye movement or in REM sleep, also known as quiet sleep. And you have rapid eye movement or REM sleep, also known as active sleep. So, You have stage one, five to ten minutes, right into your sleep. First five to ten minutes. It's just light sleep, uh, waking sleeping transition period. Okay. Then stage two, 20 minutes. Uh, the brain begins to produce uh, bursts of rapid rhythmic brainwave activity known as sleep spindles. And these play an important role in memory consolidation during sleep. Which is something we talk about with Dr. Cerf at the end of the episode. Uh, and then there's stage three, which is listed here as the delta sleep or slow wave sleep. That's uh, when the deep, slow brain waves known as delta waves begin to emerge. And then stage four is about 90 minutes after you fall asleep. This is REM sleep, which most of us are familiar with. And it is the domain of dreams, of course. So what kind of dreams, though? Well, this episode is Van Eden's nine dream worlds. So there's all kinds of dreams, right? We've all had them. He kind of came up with this classification system. And uh, I think it's interesting to look at, especially today, like almost 100 years later, like uh, how, how well this lines up with our, our current ideas of dreams, what they mean, yeah. what, what their impact is on our lives. And then we'll talk a little bit more about the science of them con- currently after that. Yeah, it's it's great. It's great to look at these and and think. All right, this is a guy in 1913 yeah. coming up with all these these terms, and he's he's doing all this, you know, ahead of all the science. But a lot of times, the science lines up fairly nicely with his classification system. Yeah, I think so too. So let's get started. What's type one? Type one is the initial dream, and uh, to quote Van Eden. It occurs only in the very beginning of sleep, when the body is in a normal, healthy condition, but very tired. The transition from waking to sleep takes place with hardly a moment of what is generally called unconsciousness, but what I would prefer to call discontinuity of memory. Okay. Now, he said that this type is very rare and that the difference between it and what we now call, well, I guess they called them that then, too, hypnagogic hallucinations, mm-hmm. is that the latter has full body perception, while in initial dreams, he he's, ta- he's talking mainly about his own subjective experience. He knows he's asleep, but he has no perception of his body whatsoever. Right. And I think we need to unpack that a little bit. So, yeah. Yeah, hip- hypnagogic and hypno pompic okay uh, falling asleep and waking states respectively all right the idea here is that these are highly susceptible to hallucination in the former your descend the descending rational mind tries to make sense of nonlinear dream images and in the later emerging the emerging dream mind tries to make sense of real world sights and sounds in the surrounding environment so it's like there's a little twilight period between dream and real life on uh, either end i like that that's a nice metaphor yeah. <laughs> And stuff can, you, you, you can get confused in those times. I think the best example of this, yeah. um, that I, I assume most people have experienced is you're reading a book yeah. as you're going to sleep. And have, has anyone else done this as well? You're, you're reading it. And then the last two pages, even, or at least a couple of paragraphs you read before you go to bed, you're reading things that are not on the page. 
Like you, I, I, I find myself doing that. I'm pushing forward. Yeah. I really should go to sleep, but I'm reading, I'm reading, and then I realize oh. I'm not reading actual yeah. words anymore. I'm reading something that's not on the page yep. because I'm already drifting into dream. I do that too. Yeah. And what I usually end up doing uh, <laughs> is I'll read those two pages and then I'll be like, I didn't, I didn't get any information out of that. I think it's probably time to go to bed. Yeah. <laughs> put it to the side, flip two pages back and put it to the side and go to bed. Yeah. 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 So, uh, what do we know today about this? I, I would argue that it sounds, sounds like he's still talking about hypnagogic hallucination, though perhaps it's more of like a closed eye hallucination, uh, of one intent on falling to sleep rather than one who is reading on and, and attempting to, to avoid sleep and finish a chapter in a book. Yeah. That's yeah. just my two cents on it. But I, I think a lot of what he's talking about here does sound a lot like a hypnagogic a hallucination. Now, type two, he refers to as pathological dreams. And the more I read about this, the more I realized that this is something I'd actually covered for our sister show, Brain Stuff. Oh, yeah? I'd written an episode of Brain Stuff about um, why when you eat spicy food and you go to sleep, you have nightmares. Um, so let's, let's line up with what Van Eden had in mind and then maybe I'll try to bring some of okay. that stuff into it. All right. So he, he believed that bodily conditions only rarely influence dreams. So Ebenezer Scrooge's whole, oh, you're just a potato, uh, jab at, uh, at Marley's ghost, mm. uh, you know, probably wouldn't have really resonated with Van Eden. Mm. Uh, he's saying that pathological dreams are the rarity due to fever, indigestion, or perhaps a poison. Yeah. Like they're not as common as one. He just kind of casually throws that out there, or some poison. Yeah, uh, and I, I think maybe he's just referring to like, like toxins from like from food or drink or something like mm-hmm. that, more than actual like. It's not like he's actually drinking poison, but maybe, maybe it could be that. I don't. Yeah, maybe I ha- people were poisoning each other a lot more back then. Yeah, I haven't found a lot of follow up on how poisons affect uh, dreams, though. I would yeah. love to hear. No, I will say this. Yeah, I. Medications, and you can sort of say medications are poisons that are in controlled amounts. Sure. Uh, I have heard of uh, specific malaria medications that can cause really intense dreams. So you could, you could say that that would be a, an example of pathological dreaming. Oh yeah, yeah, sure. And I know, um, from other research too that like SSRI medication okay. uh, significantly influences people's dreams. Yeah. All right. And he, of course, mentioned fever, and that, that is a big one too. Fever dreams are real. Though it's interesting, it's less cut and dry than you might think. Yeah. So temperature is out of whack during a fever. People lose some of the ability to regulate their body temperature during uh, REM sleep. Uh, so abnormally hot or cold temperatures in the environment can disrupt that stage of sleep. So a fever patient okay. might experience more REM sleep, but it's also just as likely that the fever is causing frequent wake-ups and then faster re-entries into REM sleep thereafter. Mm. So it's just a man- matter of I'm remembering more of my dreams because I'm waking up from them. Yeah, so he he thought like as we just said like that these were caused by a, is some mainly indigestion or fever or mm-hmm. some something external. He uses it to define that what he thinks of as true dreams are those dreams where bodily sensations don't penetrate the mind directly. So pathological dreams to him are not true dreams. Now, uh, I mentioned that episode that I wrote for brain stuff. Basically, the idea here is it, when you it, most of us know this, if you eat excessive rich foods, they cause you physical discomfort while you're sleeping. 
And any discomfort like this can lead to bad dreams, whether it's mm-hmm. because you ate like a whole pizza by yourself or drank too much or whatever, right? Like your, your physical body, the discomfort that it's feeling translates into the dreams. Now, Van Eden would say that's not a true dream, but late night snacks actually increase your body's metabolism and temperature. Like you were talking about earlier, the idea of a fever affecting mm-hmm. you here. This makes you hot and sweaty. Seven out of 10 people who eat junk food before bed are more likely to have nightmares. Uh, high levels of sugar may also contribute to sleep discomfort, which may be why I didn't sleep very well last night. Uh, I stupidly drank a sweet tea right before I went to bed and then like woke up at one in the morning and was awake for two hours. Oh. Uh, and also, we had uh, a bomb scare on my street. Oh no! Yeah, did you not know about that? No, I didn't know about that. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a, there, they, somebody found a suspicious package, and the cops and helicopters were all out uh, in the middle of the night. Interesting. So while you were up doing this, yeah, uh, I no joke had a dream that you were hiding mutant babies in the <laughs> toilets of a like a dystopian apartment building. I think there's a connection there yeah. somewhere, but it might be in the collective unconscious, which oh, we'll talk we'll about in the next episode. <laughs> but maybe we should try to figure out what type of dream you had. It doesn't sound like an initial dream or a pathological dream. No. Unless you ate some spicy food. <laughs> no, um, no. I think this one might just be an ordinary dream, which is indeed the type three here from Van Eden. He says, this is, quote, that state wherein bodily sensations, be they visceral, internal, or peripheral, cannot penetrate to the mind directly, but only in the physical, non-spatial form of a symbol or an image. So this is 100% in the dream world, uh, nothing else is messing with it. Mm. Now, one of the, uh, the the things that he hits a lot in this uh, in this uh, article that he wrote is that he, he took great issue with the conscious unconscious distinction in defining dreams. Oh yeah, yeah. This piece in particular, mm-hmm. he, you can tell that he he was a contemporary of Freud, and he was kind of uh, what's the word like bristling at, yeah. at some of Freud's theories. Yeah, indeed. And, and, but you know, I kind of side with Van Eden here because when you yeah. think about it, it makes sense. While there are certainly phases of sleep, uh, that may be devoid of conscious activity, can we really say that an intense dream or nightmare is an unconscious experience? Like, it seems like a form of consciousness. Yeah. Um, so I, I kind of side with his interpretation there. Well, here's two quotes from him specifically about this. The first, he says, the dream is more or less complete reintegration of the psyche, a reintegration in a different sphere, in a physical, non-spatial mode of existence. This reintegration may go so far as to affect full recollection of day life, reflection, and voluntary action on reflection. Then he goes on to say, the true conditions of day life, day life is being awake, are not remembered. False remembrance, par amnesia, is very common in them. They are absurd and confused and leave very faint traces after waking up. So basically, he thought these were the majority of people's dreams, and he mainly thought that they were about disassociation and imperfect reintegration. He actually likened it to insanity. He thought, well, this must be what being insane is like, is constantly (laughs) having these kind of dreams. All right, so how does all this stack up with where we stand today? Uh, well, there are basic, basically two major schools of thoughts on dreams. Uh, you can certainly break those down into, I think, about five separate categories, and maybe even more if you really start digging into, into individual theories. But it's basically the idea that dreams are only physiological stimulations or the idea that dreams are psychologically necessary. And if they're necessary, then the theories... <laughs> 
range from them being like really necessary to just like kind of a mild uh, importance. Um, it's either the byproduct of the sleeping brain or it's a necessary action. Uh, and, and on the later uh, possibility, the theories range from the purely neuroscientific to borderline mystical possibilities. Mm. Random neural firings, problem solving, a cleansing action that's not unlike defragmentation of a computer hard drive. Uh, a popular theory in recent years proposes that sleep allows us to reorganize connections and prune synapses. And these are the connections between brain cells. So in this, the dreaming world uh, would protect the brain against uh, toxicity and, and other s- synaptic overload problems by simply pruning the, s- the synapses. Yeah, and this is another thing that we talked to Dr. Cerf about uh, is all these different ideas of why we have to dream. But the main theory of why we sleep is to give our brain a chance to organize and process information, possibly through dreams, our brain takes all this sensory stimuli in while while we're awake, right, which is a lot, and decides what to keep and where to file it while we're asleep. In 2013, a series of experiments on mice actually showed that the cerebral spinal fluid that was pumped around their brains while they slept was expelling waste and toxic proteins into their livers. So there's actually a physical process to this. Uh, at least in mice, we speculate that it's happening in humans as well. By the way, uh, this is an extra little fact that uh, ties in with the unconscious conscious uh, interpretations. People who are under uh, anesthesia or in a coma are not asleep. So they can't they can't be awakened and they do not produce the complex active brainwave patterns seen in normal sleep. So instead, their brainwaves are very slow, very weak, sometimes all but undetectable. So, you know, chalk another one up. To Vanny. That is interesting, especially given my experience with anesthesia. Yeah. Um, although I've heard like stories of people who are in comas and about all these like bizarre dreams that they have, but they may be induced comas. I'm not yeah. sure. Well, I, I have one, uh, experience with anesthesia. Yeah. And it was just, you know, lights out. And then I woke up with I, a bloody mouth. It, that's usually mine. Uh, <laughs> This is this is a kind of a weird story, but I'll tell it real quick. Okay. When I was uh, in my early twenties, I uh, I had a hernia and I had to go in for surgery for it. They gave me anesthesia. Um, the anesthesia was wearing off while they had me next to a very older woman who had just undergone open heart surgery, mm-hmm. uh, and she was just in utter agony. And I just could hear the nurses just constantly coming over and upping her morphine dosage and uh-huh. talking about it really loudly because they thought I was out. Uh-huh. And I was like, I couldn't physically move and I wasn't awake, but I was aware of my surroundings. Hmm. It was, uh, it was quite strange. Well, this, this makes me think we need to come back and do an episode on anesthesia. At some Ooh, point. Yeah, that would be good. Point. That'd be good. Okay. So we're about halfway through Van Eden's uh, list of dream worlds. Let's take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about what he refers to as vivid dreams. back. So yes, type four, vivid dreams. Uh, This is what Van Eden has to say about these. He says, these vivid dreams are generally extremely absurd or untrue, though explicit and well-remembered. The mind is entirely disassociated and reintegration is very defective. 
So he commented that he, he tended to find such dreams unpleasant because of their absurdity, and that while many find meaning in them, there is no true meaning to decipher in a vivid dream. Yeah, he thought of them as being so strong that we would remember every detail painfully. This sounds like his, like... Worst mm-hmm. nightmare, worst type of nightmare. Uh, he distinguished between these and pathological dreams because these were more absurd and rare for him, at least, though he described them as being often nightmarish. So what do we know today? Well, in this, we're back to the former conundrum uh, that we touched on in the pathological section. Is the dream vivid? Am I remembering it? because it was crazier, more colorful, colorful, etc., or did I just wake up at the right point to remember it better? Uh, Indeed, am I a more vivid dreamer simply because I place a priority on remembering my dream? You know, it's said that that five minutes after the end of a dream, we've forgotten 50% of the dream's content. Ten minutes later, we've forgotten 90% of its content. So, And being awoken from REM sleep, timing yourself to wake shortly after REM sleep, immediate post-waking dream journaling, these have all been linked to improved dream recall. Mm. Yeah, so we'll talk about that a little bit more when we get into, like, the real, like, uh, tactics, I guess, for improving your lucid dreaming. Mm-hmm. That's never personally resonated with me. It's never really been something. I guess I kept dream journals a little bit for a while, but a- after a while, I just sort of just accepted the process as is, right? Yeah. Uh, and just thought to myself, yes, these dreams are interesting. And yes, like maybe I'll gather something out of writing them down, but I think I'll just let the process play out the way that it usually does in which I forget what happens later. And we'll, we'll talk about this later, yeah. but there's some people, including Francis Crick, who speculate that's what you're supposed to do because otherwise it could lead to mental instability. Yeah, I mean, I have found that when I, I bother to either write about the dream that I had yeah. or talk about it, or even in some cases, like, just think over it a little bit in anticipation of talking to someone about it, uh, I will I will actually remember more of it. Yeah. And, of course, if you want to get into the, the problems of memory, then perhaps I'm also... Uh, recoding the dreams and making the dream conform to more of a narrative structure. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so it gets a little complicated in there, but I, I tend to personally agree with the idea that, yeah, if I, if I just let the dream remain, it's going to rot away into nothing. But if I take it out and I give it a little tender love and care, then it stays with me and probably transforms into a new shape. Hmm. Well, I wonder how that leads into then symbolic dreams, which is his next uh, he, or, or he also calls them mocking dreams. Yeah. He felt like there were his dreams, and we're going to talk about this, that his dreams were like actively against him at yeah. some point. Uh, and, but, but with the symbolic ones, I mean, people spend a lot of time with the other episode. We're going to talk about Carl Jung. People spend a lot of try, time trying to unpack what their dreams actually mean. Yeah. And it, it can be quite an entertaining exercise. Yeah. But this is what Van Eden had to say. In the fifth type, the symbolic or mocking dreams, the characteristic element is one which I call demoniacal. I will readily concede at once that the real existence of beings whom we may call demons is problematic, and yet men of science find conception very useful and convenient. So he goes on to describe these demons as, quote, those phenomena which produce on us the impression of being invented or arranged by intelligent beings of a very low moral order. So we're talking erotic, obscene. Yeah, he... Uh, he his the minute he starts bringing up demons in this, it gets a little complicated because he has a very explicit point where he says, "Look, guys, yeah, clearly I don't believe in demons. That would just be absurd. But 
it does seem like there's some kind of external force that's not me that's influencing my dreams. Yeah. I'm going to call it demons. <laughs> yeah, he says, quote, to me, the word subconscious indicating a thinking entity is just as mysterious, just as unscientific as just as occult as the word demon. In my view, it is accurate to say only that in our dreams, we see images and experience events for which our own mind, our person, as we remember it, cannot be held responsible and which must therefore come from some unknown source. So uh, one of the things he specifically says when he's trying to discern the difference between, you know, popular idea of demons and his idea of Mm -hmm. demons is that it's a phenomenon produced with the impression of being arranged by intelligent beings, as you said, of a low moral order, which begs the question. So are, do we have, uh, thoughts that are being arranged by intelligent beings of a high moral order? Like that he would call angels, I guess it kind of comes down to the old like angel on one shoulder, demon on the other. Yeah, exactly. Like going uh, going into that scenario with the assumption that there's there's no such thing as a real demon or an angel that these are just kind of manifestations of the mind. Yeah, I'm guessing that would be his interpretation of the demon as encountered in the dream, like a a personified manifestation of primal urges. Well, yeah, and then you know he again we talked about how he was a contemporary of Freud. He lines these up the symbolic dreams as being kind of what Freud was reporting on at the time. He argues that a symbol, though, has to be created by an intelligence and can't be invented by itself. So this is where he gets into that there's some kind of outside intelligence influencing me. He says, well, Freud argues the symbol is created by our unconscious. But he thinks we can't be held responsible for our dreams and they must be coming from some unknown source outside of us. How do we interpret that today? Well... There's not a lot of literature dealing with demons and dreams, not a lot of scientific literature dealing with it. Not enough. Yeah. Somebody out there, get started on it, write a <laughs> dissertation. But if dreams are an assemblage of memories and interactions informed by all the stuff moving through our head, then a certain amount of in- interpretable meaning is perhaps inevitable, and even symbolism. Humans are pattern recognition engines, always ready to apply symbolism and meaning to anything and simply tweak the memory to fit it if need be. According to activation synthesis hypothesis, dreams don't mean anything. It's just random thoughts and memories. And if anything makes sense in the cut up machine of our dreams, it's it's just randomness in action. And when, then we make dream stories out of the random, randomness when we wake up, kind mm-hmm. of that, putting a, a, a narrative form on things that I was discussing earlier. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, like I said earlier, th- th- this is we're covering it now here because it's important and it's related to Van Eden. But we're going to really dive deep into it with the collective unconsciousness yeah. episode. So what all this boils down to, demon or symbol, is that it's just something outside of ourselves. So there's nothing in science to indicate that dreams pull from some a literal outside brain source. So what would how, I mean, how would that even work? Right. But for implied intellect and intent in dream entities, well, I think that's pretty easy. We have theory of mind as humans and an astounding ability to anthropomorphize everything. So, and according as well to threat simulation theory, dreams are a biological defense mechanism that gives us a leg up on real life threat encounters by constantly running simulations to prepare us. Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah, that's an interesting idea that like your brain and your dreams are sort of like a uh, like the danger room, like preparing you for real yeah. life. Gosh, so like if that's it's a nerdy. <laughs> I'm sorry, guys. No, no, no. That's 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 perfect. <laughs> I think so. It's like if you have a dream in which yeah. 
the juggernaut or apocalypse yeah. is chasing you down a hallway, yeah. then you know your 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 brain's not literally preparing you for an encounter with an X-Man villain. Right. But perhaps that is, it has to do with like a certain amount of fear in your body tying into the primal need to flee from something. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, it could be. It could be. So, all right, he's got nine. We're on six. General Dream Sensations is number six from Van Eden. And I have to say, of all of his uh, listed dreams here, this is my most common type of nightmare. Really? It is. Okay, yeah. because this is one that I I didn't have much to add on this one. Okay. Uh, we'll, just, we'll just get to what Van Eden says first. He says, it is not an ordinary dream. There is no vision, no image, no event, not even a word or a name. But during a long time of deep sleep, the mind is continually occupied with one person, one place, one remarkable event, or even one abstract thought. Yeah, yeah, I have absolutely had lots of dreams. Well, give like me this. an example of this because I have a real hard time yeah. envisioning it. The one, the one that comes to mind the most for me because I had this nightmare a lot when I was in college. Um, I worked as a line cook in a big restaurant, mm-hmm. and when orders come up, there's like a little, at least in the '90s, there was this little ticker tape machine that would spit out like a receipt that had the order written on it, right? Mm-hmm. And you would grab them, you would line them up, and you would prepare each order. And I would have these nightmares where it was just all the nightmare was was the ticker tape machine running. And it was just running over and over and over again. And there was nothing I could do to stop it. There was no there was no external thing, narrative or anything. It was mm-hmm. just that happening over and over and over again. And I couldn't stop it. OK, so maybe this would cover work dreams. I feel like we've all had these. Yeah, where, especially so. for doing something repetitive. Yeah, it's definitely. Yeah, exactly. For me, it's repetitive. Um, I yeah, I mean, I think about uh, I have I have dreams like that related to our work here. Like if I spend a whole day, like eight or nine hours just doing research on a topic for a podcast and mm-hmm. then I go to bed. This happened last night. Uh, like like I'll I'll have a dream that's kind of me like running through that information, huh. like me sitting in front of the screen, just scrolling through and reading and reading and trying to understand uh, that's sort of my modern version of that, but huh. yeah, yeah, I have I have these dreams a lot. Okay. Um, well, the one that I had used to have that might relate is that when I was working in newspapers and paginating pages, doing a layout. Oh yeah. I would have dreams where I was working on the layout, and if, but if if I messed up, it was it was weird because like it would kind of wake up a little bit and go back to sleep. Yeah. So I had this impression that I was working on the front page, and that if I disrupted the pillows in the bed, I would disrupt. <laughs> The layout of the front page of the newspaper in InDesign. Yeah, absolutely. Oh man, that re- that brings me back to the days when I was laying out magazines yeah. and stuff. Yeah, yeah. Uh, t- I think typography is like, uh, I don't know what about it, but it like is a perfect uh, like magnet for these type of dreams because like, you're, you're plugged into a a limited, like really two dimensional universe uh-huh. for extended periods of time. Uh, and just manipulating it back and forth. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So Van Eden says that these, for him, often have an elevating or consoling effect. But for some, they are extremely strange or harassing. I'd categorize mine as the latter. Mine were mm-hmm. harassing uh, and are harassing. I still have them. I, I usually can only shake them off if I physically move to another location huh. to sleep. So, like, um, I... When I was a kid, my parents used to joke about this a lot. I would literally get out of bed and go lay down on the floor and bring a blanket with me. Um, and I would sleep better that way sometimes. And now, as an adult, I'll get up out of bed and I'll kind of quietly go downstairs and sleep on the couch for like two or three hours and then come back up. Huh. 
All right, that was type six. Type seven is lucid dreaming. And, uh, of course, we'll get into more of this and we'll unpack this one more uh, in a bit. But uh, this is what he says. In these lucid dreams, the reintegration of the psychic functions is so complete that the sleeper remembers day life and his own condition, reaches a state of perfect awareness, and is able to direct his attention and to attempt different acts of free volition. Yeah, one of the things I was surprised about when reading through this was that he connected it to the idea of astral projection. Mm-hmm. And I'd never thought of that before. You know, I've always just uh experienced, I haven't experienced astral projection, but like through fiction, you know, usually fantasy uh-huh. or science fiction. Uh, I'd never thought of that, but it makes sense. Like the idea of lucid dreaming sort of being like, you're outside of yourself and you're just able to kind of roam around. And as as we'll get into a lot of people, the main go to for lucid dreaming is flying like people love yeah. the, that. That should be like on all the advertisements for the lucid dreaming plan. It's just like you want to fly. Here you go. <laughs> yeah, because it's like I, I've also heard accounts of people suddenly becoming giants. So it's right. essentially you realize that you can do anything you want and then you do like the most godlike inhuman thing possible it's never you never hear of people i don't say you never do but you tend not to hear of people waking up in their dream and realizing oh wait um i can just go to the lake or something like, right. it's never something right. very small and human because you've broken free from the human constraints of the it's dream. like superhuman powers yeah so uh van eden actually said of you know like i said he he tracked all of these dreams in this journal and he said 352 of the cases he recorded in his journal uh, he had full recollection of his day life while he was asleep, but he could act voluntarily. And this to him was a lucid dream. He was also so asleep that he didn't think bodily perceptions were penetrating into his dream perception. So this is sort of this is the laying of the groundwork for lucid dreams. And then we'll jump forward later on and talk about Stephen LaBerge and sort of the work that he created yeah. with really popularized it, I think, for our generation. All right, get excited because type eight on the the list of Van Eden dreams is the demon dream. He says, quote, now in the demon dreams, which are always very near before or after the lucid dreams, I undergo similar attacks. But I see the forms, the figures, the personalities of strange non-human beings who are doing it. One night, for instance, I saw such a being going before me and soiling everything he touched, such as door handles and chairs. These beings are always obscene and lascivious and try to draw me into their acts and doings. I love the idea that, like, getting a door handle dirty was like the most obscene of acts. Oh, I'm just imagining the like just like soiled as in uh, feces. Yeah, like yeah, the thing yeah. just can't everything it touches is just smearing with <laughs> with, with fecal matter. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, um so I mean, I think that we can track this. The difference for him seems to be that in these demon dreams, he's actively fighting against the the demons, right? Yes. In his other dreams, they're merely symbols. In in these what he categorizes as demon dreams, he's like he's aware that they are a malevolent presence and he's against them. Yeah, yeah, in these demon dreams there is a vanquishing of the demon. So it's it's kind of like it reminds me a lot of the the presence of demons in a lot of um uh, of uh, Buddhist uh, sim- symbolism, okay. uh, Buddhist art, where you'll have a a god or a general or an important uh, bodhisattva, and they're 
they're crushing a demon beneath their heel. You see yeah. this in Hindu iconography too as well. Or my favorite is you'll see them seated upon a demon that has been defeated <laughs> and made to, to set on all fours like a stool. <laughs> yeah. And, what better punishment yeah. for your enemy? enemy. See, and indeed that's, that's kind of what's going on here. Van Eden is vanquishing the demon and turning that demon into a footstool. <laughs> okay. All right. So what do we know today about this one? So. These demons could be, I think, interpreted as nightmares, perhaps even as night terrors induced during uh, sleep paralysis, and we'll get into that in a bit. Uh, and again, according to threat simulation theory, dreams are a biological defense mechanism, a simulation of what kind of trials we might face in life. So in this, the demon to be conquered could be some form, some take on a waking threat. So again, just another yeah. simulation. So uh, if any of you out there have seen the documentary The Nightmare, it covers this phenomena pretty well. It's the same guy who made Room 237. Uh, it's mainly about night terrors and sleep paralysis, but they they try to sort of fictionalize the events and uh, act them out uh, mm-hmm. as it happens to sort of show people who don't have this experience what it's like. I have had one, what Van Eden would describe as a demon dream that I very strongly remember. So much so that I actually, if people are familiar with my comics work, I've written about it in there. Oh, yeah. yeah uh, when I was 12 years old, my family went on a ski trip and I got snow blindness during the ski trip. Oh, right? yes, I yes, you've told this story. Have I told yeah. it on the podcast before? Oh, okay. But, but go, go ahead uh, for anyone who hasn't heard it. So, yeah, so I wasn't wearing my goggles. The light was reflecting reflecting off of the snow. Uh, it burned my eyes. I went blind in the middle of the night. I woke up and I couldn't see. I, I just Everything was black. And at the time, I was in a very strict Southern Baptist school in Florida uh, where we were we were just pummeled with information about demon possession. And so I was convinced that uh, I had gone blind because there was a demon in the room and I, and I was physically aware of its presence in the room, despite the fact that I couldn't see anymore. Uh, and this was just, I mean, this event had like a huge impact on my psyche as a kid. Uh, you know, I woke up the next morning and my eyes healed over by lunchtime, I think, and I could see again and everything, you know, but it was pretty scary. Yeah, I, I can only imagine. Uh, because it's, it, certainly I think we all have those childhood, we, we don't all encounter snow blindness, yeah. but we all have childhood dreams, childhood nightmares that, you know, they occur early enough that they have a profound impact on, on you, or at least they shake you enough that you never forget that dream. Yeah, totally. And like, from my experience of having a dream like that, even though I was a child, I can absolutely understand why throughout history, people have had dreams like that and have been like, oh, demons are real. Yeah. Demons are, are a for real thing. I experienced this. All right. Moving on to the ninth and final dream form in Van Eden's uh, map of the dream world. Wrong waking up, he calls it, which I, I think... And maybe that's a little more elegant in, in the original Dutch. Maybe, yeah. But he says, uh, we have the sensation of waking up in our ordinary sleeping room, and then we begin to realize that there is something uncanny around us. We see inexplicable movements or hear strange noises, and then we know that we are still asleep. So, yeah, again, in this section, he delves into the demon thing, and he thinks that these dreams are pranks that are played on him by demons. Uh, and he- Again, his peculiar take on demons that doesn't necessarily mean a fallen angel. Exactly, yeah. He spends a lot of time, again, saying, like, he actually says, I'm prepared to hear myself accused of superstition, yada, yada. I mean, he, he 
he, he says, I know, I know that you guys are going to pick on me for this, but this is what I'm going to call it. Then he says he doesn't believe in the unconscious any more than he believes in Santa Claus, which I thought <laughs> this is a really interesting distinction here. Like he's going to use the term demon for a lot of these, but then man, he was not fond of Freud. <laughs> and so he, he really drew the line there that the unconscious was about as real as, uh, Santa Claus to him. Uh, he also distinguishes these dreams as being the ones he wants to wake up from really badly. So the, the highlight of this is the dreamer is aware that they're in a dream like a lucid dreamer, but they can't wake up. Yeah. All right. So what do we know today about this? So there are certainly elements of hypnopompic or waking hallucination here. The emerging dream mind tries to make sense of real world sights and sounds in the surrounding environment. Uh, the hypnopompic state is often accom- accompanied by vivid lingering imagery and it's the stuff of dreams. So the dreamer's sexual fantasies, belief system, pop culture, all that's likely to color the visions and sensations that have uh, been ripped from the dream world. And and I believe that this form of dream that he's talking about here certainly seems to entail or potentially entail uh, entail sleep paralysis. That's again that condition that factors into so many supernatural experiences. Yeah. The body's so on on shutdown, but you're waking up uh, in into this um, half dreaming, half alert state. And we'll make sure that we explore sleep paralysis in greater detail in a future episode. And you actually have done. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I remember you did a really great video before I joined the show about sleep paralysis. Oh, yeah, yeah. I did do a video uh, about sleep paralysis. Yeah. So if, if you if you want to learn more about it real quickly, go to that Stuff to Blow Your Mind YouTube page, or, or you can find the videos on our site, yeah. too. Otherwise, I think you can definitely look forward to an October yeah. halloween episode of we Sleep should. Paralysis. Absolutely. All right. So let's just really dive into the lucid dream. This is the one that everybody's interested in. So let's get into it. So lucid dreaming, I don't personally have a lot of experience with it. I tend to find I'll have these dreams and there'll be a potential for like some, it would be so much cooler if I did go lucid. Yeah. But instead I'm just like sheepishly constrained by my, like my waking persona. So like I'll be in a dream where like I'm standing in line or something, you know, as an example. Sure. And I keep standing in line. Why am I standing in line? If I knew I was dreaming, I could make that line disappear. Or you could walk out of the line. I could yeah. walk out of the line. I could fly. I could do anything. Yeah. I could I could pick two people out of the line to go to the beach with me or something. But instead, I just stay there. I don't go lucid. My first experience with the idea of lucid dreaming was, again, in my early 20s. I lived in a house with nine people. And mm-hmm. I, lived in the, <laughs> I lived in the attic. And uh, one of my roommates... Uh, you know, one day was just like, Hey, he was kind of this like hippie guy who was just like really into ideas like this. And he was like, I've got this book on lucid dreaming and I am just, he didn't have a job. He just hung out at the house all day practicing <laughs> lucid dreaming. Oh wow. And he was, he was really into it and he must have, it must have been one of Leberge's uh, books now that I'm doing the research on this, but he was practicing all the techniques and he was just so thrilled with it. He really wanted me to know about it because he's like, dude, you can fly, you can fly. <laughs> and I was like, okay, that's cool. I, I don't really need to do that, you know? And I guess like back then I wasn't really thinking about it very consciously, but you know, now that we're approaching it here again, like I just don't really have that much interest in developing the ability to dream lucidly. I think because it seems to me like the process is doing what it should. Right. And yeah, if my imagination wants me to fly, it'll let me fly. This is, yeah, this is a common thing that, that we were both, I think, thinking of in researching it and when we speak to Surf uh, later on, is that 
in lucid dreaming, are we, we breaking the system? Is yeah. it, is it kind of like I've hacked the game to the point where like I've broken the game mechanics and I'm not getting the, the, the ideal experience out of it or I'm, it's like oh, cheating on a, a test. Really good. It's like when you add too many mods to a game, yeah. right? Like, like, uh, it's Skyrim and all of a sudden the dragon has Macho Man Randy Savage's face. You know, yeah. it's like you can do all that kind of stuff. But like at the uh, ultimately, like it's just going to bog down your game. Yeah, or it's like it's like just going in playing Doom for the first time yeah. and going immediately to God mode. All right, yeah, you're in yeah. God mode now, great. But don't don't complain to us when your overall gaming experience too is, is too easy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's true. So, lucid dreaming. It, it, it this is a real state, and it's received a fair amount of study uh, over the over the years and continuing uh, study. According to Dr. Matthew Walker, a principal investigator at the Berkeley Sleep and Neuroimaging Laboratory, he believes that while the lateral prefrontal cortex, a part of the brain that deals with logic, is supposed to be asleep during REM sleep, it's possible that in lucid dreaming, this part of the brain is waking up so that the dreaming and logic uh, systems are both working at the same time and that this is what enables the dreamer to recognize the dream. So it's kind of like... With sleep paralysis, um, your um, your mind is waking up, but your body isn't. There's a mismatch, yeah. and systems coming online are staying offline. And there would be a similar thing at play here with lucid dreaming. Yeah, I think so. Um, one of the things that I read about this, uh, actually, again, we did a Brain Stuff episode on lucid dreaming. Uh, I didn't write that one, but I, I turned to the notes and looking at this, and one of the things I learned was, did you know that Tibetan Buddhists have been practicing dream yoga that they call malam for centuries? Which I thought was really interesting because when we get into Leberge, he does dream yoga. Yeah, yeah, the dream yoga is very interesting because it also it ties into the idea that, so in the dream world, it's about questioning the nature of your reality and realizing that that all of it is an illusion and that you're yeah. free from it. And then the, the meta version of that in, uh, in, in, in Buddhism is to realize that the world is an illusion and to wake up from that as exactly. well. Yeah. So, uh, it, it makes a, makes perfect sense. So there's still some scientists that are skeptical about it because even as Robert alluded to earlier in this episode, even when people are trying to be honest about their memories, they can't always succeed because every time we call a memory up, it's an electrochemical pattern that's in our brain, and we're changing it. Some research even indicates that the harder we try for a perfect recall of a memory, the more we're going to change that memory. So a lot of scientists are skeptical about it, but hey, we have got some great scientists to turn to today to talk about it. They are, not everybody is skeptical. That's right. Now, our listeners are probably all over the board on this, and we'll probably hear from both sides, mm. lucid dreamers and people who've never achieved lucidity in their dreams. And scientists are unsure exactly why there's this distinction, why some people are better at lucid dreaming and some require much more coaching and help to achieve it. Um, one thing we can say is that adept lucid dreamers are excellent at remembering dreams. They tend to have strong visualization and spatial skills. But uh, but this could also tie into some of the stuff we're going to discuss in a bit about how to become a better lucid dreamer. Perhaps they they remember because they're journaling. They're they're more engaged in the substance of their dreams. Yeah. One of the sources that I turned to pretty heavily for this was a 1994 Omni interview with Stephen LaBerge. Uh, and at the time, LaBerge said that surveys indicate that most adults can recall at least one lucid dream, one occasion in their life where they've had a lucid dream. Uh, roughly one person in 10 has lucid dreams once a month or more. Now, that's 
contrary to my experience. Mm-hmm. I, 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 and maybe it's just because I'm not open to it as well. Like, again, like maybe if I borrowed that book from my roommate back in my 20s and practiced a lot, I would be having them more often. Yeah, you'd be. You know, I, I love this example of the, the guy because it, it makes it makes it seem like like he was almost addicted to lucid dreaming to where <laughs> his, his waking life was yeah. entirely secondary. It's almost like it became a, you know, he's like a, a, a heroin addict, um, oh, holding yeah. out in an abandoned building, uh, except his, his sweet drug is the lucid dream world. Yeah. I mean, not to go too far into it, but I don't think he was particularly thrilled with his life at the time. Mm-hmm. So yeah, lucid dreaming probably seemed like a really great escape. <laughs> so one of the, uh, the key researchers here and one of the the key areas of research for lucid dreaming is um uh, uh, psychophysiologist Stephen Labrange and he heads up the Lucidity Institute which studies lucid dreaming and offers a number of really excellent sounding workshops not only because yeah. they tend to happen in Hawaii yeah <laughs> right there's that uh it's based in Palo Alto California though and again a lot of the information here comes from that interview with him in Omni and i got to say that if you can find that interview it's kind of hilarious because the the author who writes it up has a very uh hilarious description of the people who are there and how new agey it kind of sounds uh but they give a, a fair shake too so it was founded in 1987 by Laberge it's a for-profit company we should be clear about that that trains in lucid dreaming and sells various information and tools to people for lucid dreaming Laberge let's be clear is a Stanford trained scientist he's also an entrepreneur and regarded by some as a guru he refers to his fellow lucid dreamers as Oneronauts, uh, which is apparently Latin for dream explorers. Hmm. And he went to grad school for chemistry when he was only 19 years old. Like he got his undergraduate super fast in mathematics and he was like a, you know, child genius basically. Uh, but then he also said, look, yeah, I, I got through school really quickly, but psychedelics did influence my career. So I immediately thought, oh, here's another member of the stuff to blow your mind psychedelic Avengers. Yeah. Yeah. But the more modern, uh, um, cast of the uh, the crew, I guess. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, the New York Times did a piece on him in 2007. And uh, this is a direct quote from it. I thought it was worth reading out loud. A student at Stanford University where Dr. LaBerge conducted much of his research wrote in the Stanford Daily, quote, In one of my earliest experiences with lucidity, I announced to an auditorium full of people that I was their god, wasn't I? <laughs> when they did not respond deferentially, I used telekinesis to send one of them flying across the room. So it seems like... Oftentimes, the go-to for lucid dreaming is like superpowers, the kind of superpowers we make up in our fiction and mythology, and that makes us more powerful and more in control. LaBerge himself published uh, his lucid dreaming book in 1985, as well as a a couple of follow-ups. He compares lucid dreaming to virtual reality, and he reminds us that many creative people have found their inspiration in dreams. His examples are Samuel Coleridge claiming to have composed his poem Kublai Khan in a Dream, and chemist Friedrich Kekul said he discovered the structure of benzene while he was in a dream. Uh, LaBerge even thinks... Lucid dreaming can aid people in becoming more self-confident or in learning how to accelerate their healing process. Hmm. Now, I uh, on the idea of dream instead of using dreams to come up with uh, with solutions to problems. Yeah, and all, uh, we did an old episode of Stuff to Blow Your Mind uh, based on you know, focusing on that question. Yeah, and it's uh, 
It's interesting because on one hand, if you're looking at sleep and dreams as this problem-solving exercise, it makes sense that some solutions would solidify in the course of dreams. Yeah. But you're also getting into that situation of someone waking, waking up with a dream and, and forcing a narrative on it. You're also dealing in some cases with people are telling a story. They're trying to tell an entertaining story about how they solved a problem. True. Even if you're not particularly religious or, or, you know, a mystic in any way, shape or form, there's something super tantalizing about the idea of the answer coming from a dream. It's almost like it can be yeah. a secular version of, the gods gave me the answer. Yeah, and it's, so of course, like it, it, it's attractive to guys like Stephen LeBears to try to like crack that code, right? Try yeah. to figure out how that's all working out and how seems like the key to understanding humanity in a way, right? Yeah. But he also, it's important to note here, he conducts a number of experiments. Uh, he monitors subjects w- with uh, EEGs. That's a, a test of the electrical brain activity uh, that's going on during sleep. And he's found that lucid dreaming uh, does occur during uh, REM sleep. Uh, but again, we're not exactly sure what's going on in the brain during all that. Yeah, he's actually the one who proved that lucid dreaming is real. Uh, we get into this with Dr. Cerf later, but... Uh, LaBerge and other lucid dreamers were able to communicate to the working world by means of eye signals, showing that this type of dreaming occurs in REM sleep. What they do is count off every 10 seconds and then signal with their eyes. Previously, sleep researchers thought dreams were naturally devoid of any awareness or control. So his initial study in lucid dreaming was actually inspired by a polygraph test that he read about that showed a subject's eyes going back and forth during REM. Uh, this and his research seems to point to our eyes moving in real time with what we're looking at in a dream. What I love about this, this test, and I'm sure this was something they had to overcome, is you have to have a lucid dreamer. You're going to somebody who essentially is becoming a god in the dream world. Right. And you're saying, hey, if you could, if you could just stop flying and shooting laser beams <laughs> out of your eyes and stepping on cities, stop for a second and just move your eyes around a few times. Yeah. For me, on the outside, like it seems like it's got to take a certain amount of discipline for them <laughs> to remember to to do such a small thing yeah, absolutely. in the world of dreams. I mean, his his experiments show that dream activities, whether it's counting like that or it's it's having sex, I'm surprised that more people don't report on use, lucid, using lucid dreaming to just have various type of sexual scenarios. I mean, I would, maybe they're I, just not self-reporting on that. See, that's one thing I wonder is like, is that something that to the waking individual we think, oh, if I could lucid dreaming, it would just be sex every night, maybe or. Is it is this a thing? Like you go lucid, you're not even going to worry about all that normal yeah, human stuff. You're just going to float and fly and explode. <laughs> exactly. Well, it's the Superman Superman conundrum, right? Yeah. Like, why bother worrying about sex? Uh, yeah, they're all evoking the same neural and physiological responses in real life, though. W- whatever you're doing, according to Laberge, in your dream, you're physically experiencing it sort of the same way in your body in real life. And he, you know, we're going to get into this. He's got all different kinds of ways of trying to induce lucid dreaming. First, he started with tape recorders that whispered, this is a dream to you while you're sleeping. He uh, he used vibrating mattresses and lights that were mounted inside sleep masks. And we're going to talk about this. The He actually uh, commercially made these available. They're called the Dream Light. And they had infrared sensors that detect eye twitches characteristic of REM sleep. The device switches on a flashing light that serves as a cue to remind you while you're dreaming that you're dreaming without waking you up. Uh, 
I don't, I don't know if you saw this. In 1994, he claimed he sold a thousand of those for a thousand dollars each. Huh. So each one was a thousand bucks. And then he was like, you know what? Let's make this a little bit more broadly available. And that's when he came up with the Nova Dreamer, which I know you have notes about in here too. That was his cheaper alternative and it was only $275. Uh, but it also had auditory cues, not just the flashing lights. So, so the main idea here is if you can detect or a machine can detect when you are in REM sleep, when you're dreaming, if you can somehow reach in and tell and inform that person this yeah. dream, then they can wake up. Now, another method that is, uh, it is practiced is, it's, and this goes back to the dream yoga thing too, is if you are always questioning the nature of your reality. Right. If you're always essentially asking yourself, is this a dream? If you write on your hand, perhaps, in pen, is this a dream? If you get in the practice of doing that enough in the waking world, that will carry, carry on into the dreaming world, yeah. and then you'll be able to wake up in it's the like, dream world. It's uh, like an inception where they have those, what do they call them? Each person has like their own little, um, a device that they use to test the reality of whether they're dreaming or not. And Leonardo DiCaprio has that top that he spins yeah. all the time. It's like always be spinning your top. Yeah, exactly. But that, but it's, it's weird. You got, that means you got to do it in the, in your waking life too. You yeah. got to really commit. Now, another tactic is mnemonic induction of lucid dreaming. And, uh, this is, this one is uh, another of, uh, LaBerge's techniques. So when you wake up from a dream, try your best to remember it fully. So this might mean dream journaling, talking to somebody, just thinking over it with, with a certain amount of intent. And then when you go back to sleep, keep telling yourself that you're going to remember that you're dreaming during your next dream. This is especially important if you wake up from a dream in the night. Yeah. Uh, in that Omni piece I was uh, talking about earlier, he told the the reporter that she should get up an hour earlier in the morning than she normally did mm-hmm. uh, and then try to go back to sleep and remember that, you, sh- you know, remember that she was going to sleep and that this would help with the lucid dreaming and the mnemonic induction. Uh, he also said another trick to check your dream environment is for something he calls dream signs. And these are things that don't occur in real life. So flying that this is go to. Yeah. He said flying. And then, uh, it's interesting. You said writing on your hand. This is a dream because he said writing changes every time you look at it when you're in a dream. Hmm. So he said, yeah, like write something down or look at some written word somewhere and then turn and then look back on it. If it changes, you're in a dream. Okay. It's, uh, of course, that, that might be harder now that people are reading on devices more and more. Yeah. You know? I, I, I don't want to start reading my Kindle and then freak out and try to, <laughs> that I can't lucid dream. That's the worst nightmare. Yeah, on an airplane. <laughs> so speaking of LaBerge's, like, uh, masks, like the Nova Dreamer, uh, there, this reminds me of, uh, something that happened when I first started working at How Stuff Works. Um, some people may know I was originally the host of a show here called Stuff of Genius. And the first piece of fan mail I ever received was from a listener in Leeds, England. Uh, and they really wanted to know about something called the Dream Machine. And they had cut out uh, a newspaper article about it. And it was made by a guy, a guy named Keith Hearn. So I decided to write about it and look into it. Keith Hearn is is uh, an interesting guy because it seems like he's basically taking what LaBerge has done and just trying to pretend like LaBerge doesn't exist and that he invented all of this stuff. So he uh, he calls himself the world's leading researcher in lucid dreaming. Uh, he claims that he founded the European College of Hypnotherapy. Uh, but here's the thing. He filed a patent 25 years ago for a thing called the Dream Machine. Uh, and he, he basically said, like, this is an apparatus that will let you control your dreams. 
Uh, he says he's the one who came up with the coordinated eye movement thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the, he describes this device. Keep in mind, this device was never commercially available. Uh, it used a respiratory measuring device that monitored your breathing through your nose, and it combined with electrodes that would shock your wrists. And there would be an alarm in there that was designed to remind the dreamer that they were in control. He theorized that this would help you to control your nightmares, basically by measuring how high your REM breathing rate was to understand like if you were having an emotional dream or not. Um, I got to say, like when I did the research on the piece, it didn't really seem like there was a, a ton of actual science there. It uh-huh. seemed like he'd re- like, even at the time, like LeBerge just kept coming up over and over again. Um, but, uh, word is the science museum in London has one of these machines on display. Uh, and afterward, Hearn moved on to researching something called information therapy, which he, uh, was working on to remedy sleep paralysis. Now, of course, there is one other way that LaBerge and others have sort of talked about ways to influence your dreams. And it wouldn't be a stuff to blow your mind episode if we weren't talking about pharmaceuticals and how they could affect your dreams. That's right. Uh, one in particular that comes up is uh, galantamine, which is uh, an Alzheimer's drug that aids um, you know, cognitive function and memory. Yeah, and at the time of that 1994 interview, LeBerge and his crew were searching for all different kinds of drugs to increase the intensity of their dreams. I have to wonder if they uh, uh, talked to Dr. Alexander Shulgin at all. Yeah, um, They were testing dimethyl aminoethanol, uh, which was being sold at the time as a memory enhancer. I sort of remember this. Like, you could buy it in, like, uh, like convenience stores and stuff like that. I think that. you can still buy DMAE. I could be wrong Is on that, that right? but I feel like I've seen that at... Uh health food stores in, in the last few years. Uh, and, and one thing I wanted to add here, so, you know, of course, like, we, we mentioned earlier there's people in the scientific community who don't buy lucid dreaming. One of the people who doesn't, uh, who, which this stunned me, was Susan Blackmore. Oh. Um, who wrote The Meme Machine. We've talked about her on the show before. She's a, um, I guess you'd say a student of Richard Dawkins. Uh-huh. Uh, and we'll talk about this in the other episode, but Dawkins is also like a little controversial about this stuff. He's, he's not so sure about a lot of it. Uh, and she was concerned in the nineties with reports of lucid dreaming leading to people not being able to, to distinguish between their dreams and reality. So there seems to be this weird split because they're both kind of fringy movements in science, but the dream theory people and the meme theory people don't seem to get along hmm. from what I can tell. Uh, and then, you know, LeBerge, of course, totally rejects this. And we talked to Dr. Serf about this later on. He, uh, specifically, we talked to him about Francis Crick, who's like a, he, he, he describes him as being like his role model, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, so we'll get into that with him. All right. Well, on that note, let's, let's talk to uh, Dr. Moran Cerf. Yeah. So, uh, Dr. Cerf is a professor of neuroscience and business at the Kellogg School of Management and the neuroscience program at Northwestern University. His, his focus is mainly on examining brain surgery patients, their emotions, their dreams, and their behavior. You may have also heard of him because in his previous life, uh, he used to be a hacker, ah. uh, and his job was to hack into banks and to prove that they had security flaws. Or, uh, yeah, it's perfect because what is lucid dreaming but the hacking of the exactly? Dream? Yeah, so he kind of uses that metaphor. All so, right. without further ado, let's talk to Doctor Surf. Doctor Surf, what is the current consensus on the purpose of dreaming? Uh, there isn't. There are like five different theories that try to explain what dreams are for. 
and they range from uh, there for nothing to they're the most important things that our brain can do. So here's like the kind of layout of those. One of the theories says that dreams are basically our brain's way of defragmenting the hard drive. You kind of overnight, you have to choose which memories to erase, which ones to keep, and your brain sorts them out. And because you see the visuals, if you want, of those memories passing by, you create a narrative of that, and this is what you call a dream. This is a theory that says that they don't really mean much. It's just that they're kind of an artifact of our brain doing things. That's on the one extreme. On the other extreme, there's a theory that our brain uh, is essentially looking and fishing inside at things that we suppressed during the day. This is the Freudian theory. It said we're kind of bury stuff deep inside that we want to not deal with. And then at night, because our guards are down or because our brain speaks without anyone suppressing things, we get exposed to things that kind of come up from, from our psyche. A third one that's really popular right now that I'm uh, supporting in many ways is one where the brain is uh, using the dream to simulate futures for us and kind of live through them in the ultimate visual reality. So we would actually know when we wake up if we should do it or not. So the idea is that you're debating whether to marry her and move to Alabama or break up and decide to start a company in San Francisco and you really don't know what to do. So overnight, your brain plays both movies of you moving to Alabama with her and you starting a company in San Francisco. And because it's such a cool virtual reality where the brain really doesn't know that it's not really going to the experience, you filter all of this movie through your values and emotions. And when you wake up, even though the memory itself is lost and you have no recollection of the dream, what survives is the feeling towards those choices. So when you wake up, you kind of have a better answer to what you should do. So those are three theories. There's two more uh, along the same lines, but they kind of fall into those buckets. They mean nothing, but they're just our brain's way of working. They mean a lot because they're our brain's way of reflecting things that we ourselves suppress, and they are our brain's way of simulating futures that we didn't experience yet in an ultimate virtual reality device that's so amazing that we are fooled by it ourselves, thinking that we are the character in this movie, and then waking up and knowing what to do. So this really sounds like something that science is is really still trying to nail down. And that brings me to the you know main topic of this episode that we we covered, which is lucid dreaming. And lucid dreaming seems like it's even less scientifically grounded. So can you talk a little bit about that? And if we achieve lucid dreaming, is is this breaking the system in some sort of way of those those various theories that you just presented to us? So, so what's cool about lucid dreaming is that it kind of bridges this one problem that scientists have with studying dreams, and that is that most of the times we cannot really ask you anything about dreams because you're awake when you tell us the story and you're no longer in the dream. So this is like the one study that we can't really do because we want to see you when you're in a dream, but when you wake up, you're no longer there. So whatever we ask you is going to be you reflecting on some residues that you have, and we're going to be lost in that. So scientists have been looking for a while at people's report on dreams and use that, but we know that those are kind of flawed in many ways. Now there's a way to look at dreams when the person is still asleep using techniques that allow you to sneak into the brain and look what's going on there even though you're asleep. But lucid dreamers are the exact kind of group that allows us to do both. There's a person who's dreaming and asleep and he or she is able to somehow signal to the outside world what they're going through. And that's a remarkable thing. What come out, comes out of that are a lot of results that show us 
something that we were baffled by for a while, and we can now ask the lucid dreamer to basically tell us. So I'll give you an example. For a while, there was a question uh, that people asked whether time in dreams is uh, similar to time in reality, as in uh, do 20 seconds in your dream amount to 20 seconds in your awake world, or maybe time in dreams are much, uh, is much faster or it's much slower. We didn't know the answer. Lucid dreamers could actually answer that because what, what one of the uh, famous scientists that studied lucid dreaming did was he trained a lucid dreamer to basically signal to the outside world that he or she are starting their dream. So when they get to the dream, even though their eyes are closed, they're able to kind of move their eyes a little bit up, down, left, right, up, down, left, right in a sequence that was determined in advance. And this told the scientist, LaBerge, that the person right now is starting to do something in their dream and that they're in control of the narrative. And then he told them, in your dream, count from 1 to 20. And when you get there, uh, move your eyes again in the same pattern so I would know that you got to 20. So they kind of took time and measured how long it takes them to count from 1 to 20 in their dream. Then he woke them up and had them do the same thing when they were awake. And he could compare the numbers. And finally, we had the answer that time in dreams is actually one-to-one math to time in reality. So it took them exactly the same time to count to 20 when they're streaming and when they're awake. But this is the only way we could give the answer to that because if I asked you, you already out of the dream, but lucid dreamers are the ones that can actually tell me I'm counting right now while being asleep, monitor me. On the subject of lucid dreaming, why is lucid dreaming so difficult for many of us? Because we don't really know exactly how to get there. And it seems that uh, it kind of breaks the barrier that our brain created for dreams. So there's a reason that our brain keeps dreams in one compartment, if you want, and keeps the awake state in a different one. Uh, For the same sake, we forget our dreams most of the times when we wake up, because our brain really wants to separate the awake world from the dream world, because there are different systems that compartmentalize and and operate there, and also because the brain wants to make sure that we won't mistake uh, any of the dreams for real memories, so we won't wake up and think that we just scored a touchdown at the NFL. The brain has this mechanism for that, and now now you can think, okay, well, what if a lucid dreamer really kind of breaks the barrier, and now memories that are created in the dream become his or her Real memories, and when they wake up, they don't know anymore, did it really happen or not? We already have that. We already have people waking up and really uh, not being sure if what they remember is something that they just dreamt or was it reality. Lucid dreamers are kind of breaking the barriers so much that they really can wake up and not know anymore. And that's part of their problem. And that's something that the brain doesn't really want us to do. So lucid dreamers are kind of defying the rules of dreams. So I've read that you are very heavily influenced by Francis Crick. And in our research for this episode, we actually found something. It came up that Crick speculated that we need to dream on a regular basis so that our brains can shed memories and not be overloaded with data, kind of going back to that defragmenting the hard drive theory you were talking about earlier. He also indicated that he was worried that that recalling dreams too much or, or maybe lucid dreaming could lead to mental instability. What's our understanding of these theories today? Is this uh, do you think uh, Crick's Crick's ideas about uh, understanding our dreams too much? Or are we seeing more of that today? Absolutely. So 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 dream, my academic godfather and, you know, the inspiration to many neuroscientists, he had. Indeed, a theory, one of the kind of five theories of dreams was his, and he suggested that we basically, we dream to forget. And the idea is that if you think about that uh, as a kind of hard drive, we collect a lot of information during the day, 
and our hard drive gets full of a lot of things. People we met, uh, phone numbers we were asked to remember, details that we learned, all of that is in our brain, and we can't just store all of that. There's just too much out there. So there needs to be a time where the brain picks the 12, 20, 50 important things and strengthens them and takes the other that it doesn't care about and kind of suppress them so they either get forgotten entirely or at least move to a place where they're less likely to be uh, you know, used uh, often. What Francis suggested is that this happened overnight, actually not overnight entirely, but in a specific window during the night. That's the state that people think is the moment where dreams happen. And that what we call the dream is our memory really moving things from one place to another. And we just see the memory of the things that we have to forget kind of floating in our brain and our brain weaves it into a story. So we see the number that we don't really want to remember moving from the left to the right and it puts it into a story. And then it sees this person that we didn't really want to remember and her name is just about to be forgotten, kind of coming up from left to right. And we attach it and we say, okay, this is a woman and here's a phone number. And we may make a story basically from the things that our brain is kind of slowly getting rid of. All right, so there you have it, the nine dream worlds of Frederick Van Eden, lucid dreaming, and uh, and, and the, the science of lucid dreaming. Yeah, so we've, we've unpacked a lot in this episode. There's a lot going on with dreams, and maybe you will listen to our other episode uh, on collective unconsciousness. I want to know from you, have you experienced these type of dreams, all nine of them? Did you, do you buy into Van Eden's uh, demon theory, all this stuff? Mm-hmm. Let us know. Uh, the best ways to do that, we are all over social media. You can get in touch with us on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr. We're also on Instagram. Yeah, head on over to StuffToBlowYourMind.com as well. That's our website. It's the, the mothership, and it's recently received a, a wonderful new redesign. It looks it looks great. Come and check it out, because that's where you'll find all the podcast episodes. You'll find blogs, videos, and links out to those social media accounts. And if you want to just write us the old-fashioned way, you can always get at us at BlowTheMind at HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 